I'll be reading this morning from Mark 13, verses 32 through 37. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. I think it's on every speaker's most desirable outcome, whether you're a preacher or a teacher, or if you present in front of anybody ever, one of the most undesirable outcomes is sleep. (laughs) My great hope this morning is that you don't fall asleep and that I don't put you to sleep or aid in your sleep. The church does have an ancient history of that. If you look in Acts chapter 20... There's a great preacher by the name of Paul. You might have heard of him. He's preaching, and and the text actually kind of puts it on him for making a guy fall asleep. If you listen to it, it says, on the first day of the week, they were gathered, they were breaking bread, and Paul talked with him, tending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Listen to the, the narrator. Like The blame here is going towards Paul. He prolonged his speech until midnight, and there were many lamps in the upper room where he gathered, and a young man named Eutychus. Oh, poor Eutychus was there, and he was sitting at the window, and he sank into a deep sleep as, again, Paul talked still longer. Like, again, Luke is, is uh, Paul's friend, but he is definitely blaming him here, so maybe uh, Paul had some regrets from this later, and he, and he falls down from the third story, and it was, he died, and that's the end of the story. No, Paul goes down and resuscitates him. But surely that wasn't on Paul's most desirable list, like his outcome from meeting with them and preaching to them wasn't that someone would fall asleep and follow the window. Indeed, Mark 13 has been a long discourse from Jesus, and he tells us that his outcome is the opposite of falling asleep. He repeats it several times. He has this discourse, this long teaching in Mark 13 with his disciples, where his desired outcome is that they not do what Eutychus did. That they stay awake. And he's not concerned so much about physical sleepiness, though that's going to be a problem later in the Gospel of Mark. He's concerned primarily to prepare his disciples for what's ahead. And so he tells them repeatedly, he tells us, stay awake. So in chapter 13, we've covered a lot, right? We've, he said early on, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. The abomination of desolation is coming. The, the Son of Man is coming with the clouds. And it's all been driving to this conclusion that he wants his disciples to get. Stay awake. Trust the Father and be ready for what's coming. You see, there are many ways to take chapter 13, but let's not miss one of the main ways Jesus wants us to receive this and respond to it, and that is by staying awake. Now, all through the Gospel of Mark, and especially here in chapter 13, there's this tension of what he's been saying, the content of 13. Is this for those disciples, the four that he's speaking with, or just his disciples then? Is it for Mark's audience, or is it for later? 
Is, it, is he talking about events that are going to happen to them, or is he talking about future events concerning the end? Is he talking about the coming of the Son of Man, or is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? And again, we face that tension when we turn to verse 32. It says, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. And we got to think, like, what day and what hour? Which day are we talking about? And one of Jesus' points throughout this discourse was to show those disciples, the four that were asking the question that they started in verse 4, and the, the disciples and Mark's audience, he was, he was giving them some content that they could know that the coming of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem was at hand. So at least part of what Jesus was saying through this was that I'm going to give you some things for you to know that this is going to come about. He says there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, the abomination of desolation is going to get, be there. He gives them last week, we talked about this, right? The illustration of the fig tree. When you see its leaf, you know that the season is near. And in verse 30, he even emphasizes again that this generation, so he was giving them something to know when the temple was close to being destroyed, when Jerusalem was going to be besieged. And here, I think, verse 32, he gives again some contrasts. If you look in verse 30, he says, this generation will not pass away. Until all these things take place, and it seems a, a, a contrast comes in verse 32. He says, but concerning that day or that hour, and that contrast, we think, points again not to something for them that was going to happen in their day, but that day, that hour, as in the coming Son of Man. We have Matthew's take on this as well. Matthew, in his parallel passage, gives us a little bit of help in this direction to think that this is the day, the hour, the coming Son of Man, the future, the end. When Matthew says this in Matthew 24, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Notice just how parallel this is with Mark here. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. But then he diverges a bit from what Mark records. And he says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So he's speaking of how it's going to come unexpectedly. You're not going to know it. Like there's going to be people that are going to do all sorts of things and it's not going to be expected by many. And so Matthew, I think, clarifies that the day, verse 32, that Jesus is speaking of is the, the coming Son of Man day, that day. The day that he started talking about in 24 through 27, that he specifically said in 26, that coming is the day that he's speaking about in 32. And here's what he says about that day, that not even the angels in heaven nor the Son know of that day, but only the Father. And no one knows and if that's not clear enough, Jesus wants to clarify even more. Even more. Like, so if you think, like, I, I have special knowledge, he says, not the angels in heaven, they don't know. Even the Son doesn't know. So he wants to make sure he pushes in even more and clarifies even more. And gives us this list of people that don't know of that day or that hour when it is. And it's an impressive list, is it not? Angels in heaven? Sinless beings designed to be in the very presence of God don't know. The Son doesn't know. And that one gets a little bit puzzling, doesn't it? There's something that the Son of God doesn't know. And in fact, that very Son admits that he doesn't know it. So what's going on here? Mark has clearly presented Jesus as the unique Son of God. As the one who has authority. Strange authority. God-like authority. Authority on earth to forgive sins. None can do that but God alone. But Jesus steps into that and forgives sins. He has authority over the Sabbath. He calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. There's only one Lord of the Sabbath, and that's God. And Jesus is claiming that. He has authority over demons. They do exactly what he tells them to do. 
They don't say more or less than what he allows. He has authority over creation as he walks on water and tells the winds to be quiet and the the waves to die down. They do everything as he says. He has authority. Or perhaps we could look in chapter 13. If you look back in 27, I want to catch one small word in here that seems to be significant. He is going to gather his elect. That's interesting because all through the scripture, the elect are are gods. That's the Father's people. And yet Jesus calls them his. And so the word of Jesus and the work of Jesus all through the gospel of Mark are testifying to the reality that Jesus is himself God. He's God. And as such, he has supernatural knowledge. In Mark chapter 2, if you turn back there, this is the one where he's healing a man who's paralyzed and stepping in to forgive sins. And he knows what the Pharisees are thinking. He knows what's in their heart. He has supernatural knowledge. And so he responds to them in chapter 2. It says, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? You might remember in chapter 5, where a, a, a woman comes to him and just touches the hem of his garment. And yet Jesus perceives that power has gone out from him. How do you do that? You have some supernatural knowledge. In chapter 10, there's a rich young man that comes to him. And Jesus knows just the right question to ask, the right thing to command of him. And he says, why don't you just go sell all your possessions? How did he know that? That that was going to be the thing that would turn him away. In chapter 11, as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, in verse 2, he sends out his disciples and he says to them, go to the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. How does he know that? In chapter 8 and 9 and other places, he He says, here's what's going to happen to me when I go into Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. They're going to condemn me to death. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to be raised. He clearly has supernatural knowledge. In the other Gospels, we attest to this as well. He knows some some intimate facts about Nathaniel, who was sitting under a tree before he even meets Nathaniel. The Samaritan woman, he knows how many husbands she has, and that the one that she was with as he meets her wasn't even her husband. He knows Lazarus. He, He hears Oh, he's actually going to die, and then he shows up and he says, yeah, he's already been dead for four days. He knows about this story. He knows about fish in lots of different ways. There's lots of fish knowledge from Jesus. Like, he's like, you haven't caught anything all night? Well, I just throw it out on the other side, and I guarantee you there's going to be fish there. I I know that the currents are moving that direction right now, and what they catch fish. And, oh, go catch a fish, and there's going to be a coin in its mouth. He, He knows all of those things. So Jesus' knowledge is clearly displayed in the Gospels as extraordinary, supernatural. But that's not the same thing as saying that it's infinite. Or saying that Jesus is omniscient and that he has all knowledge. And so I think we could say without diminishing the deity of Jesus at all, that Jesus became man, that the the Lord, that God became man. He took on flesh and in every respect, including knowledge and intellect, was man. Yet he was without sin. This means that there were things that Jesus as man did not know. He lived within the limitations of a human mind. One 
theologian says it this way, that just, just as Christ had to fulfill the office of mediator within the limitations of a human body, so he had to f- fulfill it within the limitations of a human mind. And really, this poses no problem for us in regards to the person and work of Jesus. We are those who say that he was fully God and fully man. And it's mysterious and wonderful that this doesn't make Jesus somehow fallible. It makes him fully human. Everything that Jesus needed to know, he was, was revealed to him by the Father. He received within his human capacity. And yet, we know of Jesus that he had a sinless capacity, a perfect intellect that was perfectly attuned to to receive from his Father, that was perfectly able to receive all that he needed to know. He uniquely enjoyed some intimacy with the Father as the unique Son. And so we know that because of that and because his perfection in receiving and attuned to his Father, he didn't miss any needed knowledge. He was fully synced with everything that he needed to know. Again, this theologian says this, that as a finite creature, there was much that Christ did not know. But as mediator, he knew all that he needed to know, or more precisely, all that his church needed to know. This cannot mean that the Father had told him everything about physics and chemistry and history and biology, or even in light of Mark 13, 32, about eschatology, that is, in times. What it means is that the Father shared with him as much about the mystery of redemption as he needed to know. It is clear from Mark 13, 32 that the time of the parousia, that is the coming of the Son of Man, was not revealed to Christ. And it is virtually certain that the reason why it was not revealed was that this was not something his people needed to know. Jesus likely didn't know the speed of light. He didn't need to know that. He didn't have every bit of information and knowledge. He had all that he needed to know. Think of this, that Jesus, the eternal God, took on flesh, added humanity to his deity. And why did he do that? Why did he take on human knowledge? Mark tells us in Mark 10, 45, does he not? He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He willingly embraced serving within the limits of of human finitude, of of human limitations, of, of limited access and knowledge to things for the sake of saving. In verse 32, it says that the son didn't know. And I think that this points us to the goodness of that son who would come after us and seek and save us even by having a fully human mind. To have a human mind means that you're not omniscient. You have limited knowledge. So verse 32, I think, gives us a glimpse of the lengths that Jesus was willing to go to in order to redeem us, to love us and to serve us. But there's a further reason to belabor this point of Jesus not knowing that hour is that we too can follow Jesus in this not knowing. And Jesus is clear. No one knows. He's going to repeat it again just in case someone's smart aleck and thinks they actually do know. Like, no, you said no one knows, but it actually means that I know. Like, no, verse 33, no one knows. No, verse 35, no one knows, right? Like, you don't know. Later, he's going to give one of these disciples, John, revelation that tells about the end. But guess what he doesn't include in that revelation? The date, the time, the hour. He says, no one knows. And it's not just that no one knows, it's that God doesn't reveal it. And we need to recognize that. 
God doesn't give that knowledge, and that's intentional on God's part. It's perfect action, perfect revealing and concealing on his part. In his infinite wisdom and holiness, God gives his people, all his creation, all sorts of things. In fact, Peter says that he gives us all that's needed for life and godliness, but he conceals the date, the time. He gives us all sorts, but he conceals that. This means that there is in all of us divinely ordained ignorance. And that's a good thing. The the lack of knowledge of the day, of that day and that hour, of the coming Son of Man, is what God wants. It's the way he set it up. And so the seemingly endless interest and attempts at knowing that day and that time, the The endless calculations and speculations, the endless decodings, the endless prophesying of that date are, as one author says, and I agree, not only fruitless and irrelevant, but positively rebellious. Clamoring after something that the Father openly withholds or seeking knowledge where God has ordained ignorance is not a neutral thing. though it's not new. In fact, it's ancient, as ancient as the Garden of Eden. In Eden, God had given Adam and Eve a world of yes. Here is all that you get. You can have all of this. Enjoy it. And one no. And it had to do with knowledge. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to the words that are given. The Lord took the man, he put him in there, and the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Listen to God's provision, his goodness, his protection here. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And Satan crept into that garden, slithered, and started talking to the woman, and it led to the fall. And here's what we read in chapter 3, verse 5. For God knows, this is the words of Satan, God knows that when you eat of it, that tree that he told them not to eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here was some divinely ordained knowledge that God did not want them to have. He told them he didn't want to have it. And Satan attacked. And notice Satan's attack. It's not just an attack on God's word. It's an attack also on God's character. What kind of God would withhold that one tree? He knows that he's holding this back on you because this is actually a good thing. It could you be like God. That's an attack not just on the word. That's an attack on the character of God. How could God hold out something like this from you? And Adam and Eve were led away from trusting in God's wisdom, his generosity, his provision, his loving plan in withholding that one tree. And it's the same sin as Adam and Eve that pushes us to go after what God has openly withheld. It's the same lack of trust in God's wisdom, generosity, provision, and loving plan that leads to endless calculations of that day and that time, endless speculation so that we can figure it out. We don't like not knowing. It reminds us that we're not God, and we want to be Him. 
at best trying to know that day and that hour, trying to know what God has withheld is fruitless, at worst rebellious. It reveals a lack of trust and contentment in God's wisdom, in his provision, in his generosity, in his holiness, and in his knowing and that being enough for us. In church, there's a better way. There's a better way in front of us. What does Jesus do with what he doesn't know? Remember, the son doesn't know. He contentedly entrusts it to his father. Jesus is content here, is he not? Content all through his life and his ministry. He's not panicked. He's not clamoring for a date. He is steadfastly following and trusting his father, and he is our example. One author continues that he had to learn to obey without knowing all the facts and to believe without being in possession of full information. He had to forego the comfort which omniscience would sometimes have brought. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. We can keep our eyes fixed on him. Jesus is content to do Deuteronomy 29.29 that says that the secret things, they belong to the Lord. He's content with that. He's content with letting the secret things remain with his father and that the father would give him everything that he needed for life and godliness, for obeying him, for uniquely carrying out his mission as the unique son of God. And this is the example we follow. This is the better way, the way that keeps us from fruitless speculation, from discontented rebellion and trying to figure out what God has openly withheld. So the question is then, are we content with that? Are we content to let the secret things belong to God? Is it enough for us that God knows and we don't? Or must we be like God? To know the date that he has withheld. Or maybe we say, well, we don't need to know the exact date or the month. Maybe the year or the season. And doesn't that miss the point? He repeats it so that he knows you just, you don't know. It doesn't matter if you, it's a season, month, like you're missing the point of the words of the Son of God. Jesus is emphasizing that no one knows. He is trying to then engender work, stir up in his disciples a trust and faith and contentedness that the Father knows and that that actually is enough. So you don't even need to know what he hasn't revealed, including the season and the month. The Father knows and that's enough. That's what faith looks like. In fact, we can say that it's actually a kindness that we don't know. That it's God's expressed love that he withholds this. Here's another thing that, to be anxious about that Jesus pulls from our plate and says, no, that's mine. I'll take that one for you. Don't worry there. But trust the one who does know. Trust the one who has that hour in his hand. But that truth that no one knows doesn't mean that the disciples are to be unprepared, inactive, or idle. Much of what Jesus has been doing in this entire discourse is to prepare the disciples for what's ahead. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Listen to what he says in verse 33. Be on guard. There's that same word again. We've seen it throughout. You could translate it beware, be on guard. It's repeated again here. Beware, be on your guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. And the truth that no one knows is meant to lead to an action. Being on your guard, staying awake, being alert, being vigilant. 
And so if, it, if, if reading Mark 13 leads to something other than those kind of actions, we can know that we're off course outside the scope of Jesus. He isn't looking for end times code breakers. He, he's working to develop faithful, obedient disciples. That's why so clearly throughout chapter 13, he's given all these imperatives, really clear things to like, go do this. In the midst of some stuff that you don't know, make sure you do the things that are really, really clear. If something different than constant readiness is produced, then we can know we're outside of Jesus' scope and desire of what he desired with this discourse. Be alert. Be on your guard. The uncertainty of that hour, of that time, and notice that he, he says time, so he makes sure we have day, hour, time. Like just in general, you don't know of that. He makes sure that we're working towards constant vigilant awareness. And it's necessary. Listen to his words in 34. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. The doorkeeper, a prominent role. You have great responsibility as the doorkeeper, you are kind of responsible to the master in charge of the traffic in and out of the house and the flow in and out of the house. You have some responsibilities to the contents in the house. You have the keys, the responsibilities of opening that door when the master comes. It's an important job. It's a great responsibility. And the only way to hold that position well is to actually be awake, to not sleep. To stay awake. The doorkeeper is not to be found asleep. Why? Because the master could return at any time. And so the doorkeeper has to be constantly alert, constantly ready, constantly vigilant. One of the first things that you will be taught if you play any sport, hopefully, is a good athletic position, a good athletic stance, right? There's this Basic, and yet it's needed. So I've seen my children, like, we. all right, here's what we start with. Don't just stand like this. You got to you gotta have an athletic position here. You're like, you bend your knees a little bit, you know. You, you, get, off the, you get off your flat feet, and you, you kind of you get on the balls of your feet, right? You, you got to be able to move. You got to be ready, right? You got to be able to go in different directions and react and respond to things. You can't just stand straight and that work for sports because... You never know when the fly ball is going to come your way, right? This is the, the constant bane of t-ball coaches. <laughs> All right, guys, like I know you're going out in the outfield, and really we know the chances of there being a fly ball are really slim. But hey, you've got to be ready. You never know. So it's like the, the battle in that is to pay attention, watch the ball, and be ready, right? That's the, the battle because you don't know. A fly ball might come out there, and that gets, keeps going throughout uh, baseball times, like even in middle school, like high school. Like you never know. Like you've got to be ready or even in advanced sports like you're, you're playing football like you're you're the cornerback like you 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 don't know when the receiver is going to have a double move i know they haven't thrown the ball all game but you got to have a good position or you're going to get burned like you you need to know all these things and jesus is telling his disciples don't be flat-footed you don't know when the double moves coming right you don't know when the fly ball's coming your direction no one knows that time 
That means not that you don't do anything, but that you actually be ready all the time. You be in this constant vigilance, so you're always in that good athletic position, that you're always ready for the fly ball to come. It hasn't come in a long time. That doesn't mean it's not coming in the next second. So be ready. Think of how that day, the end, is described in the scriptures, described as a thief. In other words, if you knew when the thief was coming, you would take action, right? You don't know. So the best way to actually protect your your stuff is to be ready all the time so if it ever does come, we're ready. That means different things to different people around here for sure. I'm not going to tell you how to apply that in a practical sense. In the spiritual sense, it's be ready. There's an unexpected nature in a sense then. right? That's what the, the thief in the night means. There's an unexpected nature attached to the coming of the Son of Man. Be ready. Or you read Revelation. You read Revelation, and there's, there's lots of strange starts and stops in Revelation. Right? In chapter 6, there are these seven seals that are talked about. But in chapter 6, you only get six seals. And then you think, all right, the seventh seal is coming. Nope, doesn't come until chapter 8. Well, in chapter 8 and 9, you get these trumpets, seven trumpets. You get six trumpets in chapter 8 and 9. You're like, all right, that means the seventh is coming, right? Seven is a big number in the Scripture. I know the seventh is coming. It doesn't come until chapter 11. There's all these strange delays, starts and stops with all that's going on, and God is doing something with all of it. All that is to say is that we don't know, and it seems like it's near, and then it's far away, and oh, the seventh is coming, and it's two chapters down, and there's all sorts of events in between. It's unexpected. Mark 13, all the way through, you're going to see some things, and then the coming of the Son of Man is going to be a little bit different. So what is the result? What's the conclusion? Stay awake. Be ready. Be on the balls of your feet. Don't be flat-footed. He repeats it, 37. And what I say to you, I say to all church, listen to these words, stay awake. It's what he wants his people to know. Idleness, passivity, being unaware doesn't befit those that are certain that the Son of Man is coming, that the master of the house is going to return, and it could be at any moment. Now, staying awake could mean less than obeying what Jesus has already commanded, right? Now, he's given, even in chapter 13, several imperatives, several really clear commands. And so he couldn't then at the end cancel that out and say, stay awake. And that, you know, that means you're actually only watching for the coming of the Son of Man and not doing any activity. And so all those things that I told you in the rest of the chapter don't mean anything. No, of course not. Like, so staying awake couldn't mean something less than obedience to Jesus. Or we could say staying awake in Mark's terms could be taking up your cross and following after Jesus, letting his life become your life, trying to become more and more like Jesus. That's clearly in the Gospel of Mark and throughout the New Testament, the the goal and the desire that we become like our elder brother, Jesus. But we also can think about what Peter and James and John and Andrew did with this knowledge. What did they do with it? They gave themselves, the book of Acts, right? They gave themselves to the word of God in prayer. They, they devoted themselves to the fellowship of believers. They rejoiced in their suffering. They stood firm in hope. They testified everywhere to the gospel of God. That's how they stayed awake. Or you could read these words from Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter was listening to Jesus' words in Mark 13, and, and he goes on to live his life that we see in the book of Acts, and we also see this in First Peter as he wrote this down. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we do that? 
He tells us, by holy living, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. How do we get ready? We live holy lives. We become holy. We take on the character and nature of Christ. We live a life like him. That's what it means to be his follower. Or he says later in 2 Peter, a few pages over in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So how are we to act? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. How are we to live with holiness and godliness as we wait? What are we to do? Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found in him. And how do we do that? We need to be without spot or blemish and at peace. Not clamoring to find a date at peace, working towards holiness and godliness without spot or blemish. The consistency from Peter is so clear. Be holy. That's what he thought of staying awake. Start living holy lives. Or we could look to John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. He says, the world is passing away along with its desires. So what should we do? Do the will of God. That's what abides forever. He says, children, verse 18, it's the last hour, as you've heard, that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Like, well, what are we to do now that it's the last hour? Look what he says in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Here's how you wait. You abide in the Son and in the Father. You live his life. You let him give you all that you need. How about chapter 3, verse 2? It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has that hope in him, what does he do? Purifies himself as he is pure. Or chapter 5, verse 20, 21. This is how he ends. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so what are we to do, little children? Love this end. Keep yourselves from idols. Like holy living, worship and honor to God is to be our lives. Be awake in your holy living. And in that sense, we're obeying what Jesus has commanded us. Japanese soldiers of World War II are described as some of the most disciplined ever. That was displayed so clearly in what you could read up on as the holdouts of their army. That would be the soldiers who continued fighting after Japan surrendered. They were some of the soldiers that, some of them even lasted until, get this, VJ Day was in 1945. 
Some of the last holdouts were in 1974. One of them was found in Guam in 1972, and he still had his army issue rifle, and he said that he wanted to return it to the emperor. May those who trust in Christ be his holdouts, be found all over the world, remnants of those who are still clinging on to what Jesus has told us to do, staying awake, vigilant, always ready to fight. See, part of that happened for these holdouts is that they had received news through pamphlets that were dropped or things like this, and they just refused to believe them. They said it was propaganda. You're going to hear wars and rumors of wars. You're going to hear Antichrist. There's going to be all sorts of news that's going to come, and yet we have the word We have our marching orders until the end of our days. And so no matter the news that's flying at us, we trust in this. We refuse to believe things outside of this that contradict this. And we just hold on tightly, gun ready, no surrender, not backing down no matter what, because Jesus has given us this command. And we stay awake. Why? Not because we know when, but because we know there is a win. Not because we know the date, the time, the hour, but that we know that there is a day, a time, and our hour, and that our Father knows it, and He's going to bring it about in His good timing, and we trust Him. Certainty with uncertainty of its exactness keeps us awake. One of the ways, church, that we keep awake is we do what Jesus has told us to do together. And one of the things that He has commanded us to do together to keep us awake, to keep us ready, vigilant, ready for what he has commanded for us is to take the Lord's Supper together. This is a sacred family meal where we're reminded of what Jesus has done. We're reminded of his words on the night before he was to be betrayed. We remember his words that he was going to return. And so if you're a believer, part of your marching orders now, part of your staying awake now is being obedient to this call to take the bread and be reminded of Jesus' body that was broken so that our bodies could be made whole one day. To to take the cup and be reminded of Jesus' blood that was poured out so that our sins could be cleansed and forgiven as white as snow. And to take this meal in remembrance of what Jesus has done and in proclamation for his return, which will come, according to the scripture, soon. And so church, if you're a believer, if you've trusted in Jesus, come. Receive a piece of bread. Take a cup and be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf And proclaim in this meal that he's coming again. If you're not a believer, if you haven't trusted in Jesus, we would say instead of coming to receive this meal, instead receive Jesus. Repent of your sins, believe in him, and then we'll prepare you to take that next time. If you know what that looks like, know what that means, find another believer, come ask one of us, we'd be happy to share with you. So let's bow our heads in preparation for this meal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we take great comfort in knowing that you know all things. Lord, forgive us when we refuse to settle for ordained ignorance. God, we long for your return. And yet sometimes I think that longing can produce in us unhealthy thinking 
and questions, Lord, that really we ought not to ask because you've already given us answers. But God, we are encouraged to know that just as Dylan said, there will be a win. There will be a point when our Lord returns to, to get us and to bring us into eternity. But Lord, until that time, I just pray that we would be ready. I pray that, Father, we would be mission-focused, that we would see the urgency around us in the world. We just heard from Johnny this morning. We know so many millions of people are lost in those Tibetan areas, so many millions in India, so many millions across this globe, Father, who have never even heard the gospel. Lord, may our readiness center on bringing that message to the people who are not ready to see you face to face. Lord, we're grateful that your promises stand, that not a one of them will fail, and that you promise to come back for us. I pray that this meal would honor your great name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.